If you have your Bibles here, please encourage you to open those up and uh, read along with me as I as I read those. So that was John chapter 4, and I'm reading from verses 4 to 42. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat warily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came near to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift of God, Sorry, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you go to get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who worship him that way, for God is spirit, so that those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have the kind of food that you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, Wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. 
What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others have already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. Good morning, everybody. So we are resuming our Meet Jesus series as we're taking a walk through the Gospel of John. And this morning, the focus is on Jesus as the saviour of the world, as that uh, reading came to an end, that was a declaration that the people who had met Jesus in that village, they said, we've come to believe that Jesus is the saviour of the world. Let's just do a little quick recap about how we've been going through John. In case you've forgotten, why did John write his gospel? Why did he write his book? Tell people about Jesus is a very good answer. In fact, it's these. He said, this is written, this is John 20 verse 31, these, this is written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you'll have life by the power of his name. It's a great reason to write. Now John, John likes the number seven. What are the sevens that Jesus speaks and does in John's gospel? What are they? Remember? Oh, it's been a long time, I know. There are seven titles that we hear people, seven titles given to Jesus, there are seven signs that Jesus does, and there are seven declarations that Jesus makes about himself. Just turn to the person next to you and tell them one of the seven. Pick any, you've got 21 there, just pick any one of them. And you might say, I can't think of one. Just pick one. Seven titles, one of the titles of Jesus, one of the signs that he does, one of the statements that he makes, one of the declarations, one of the sevens. Okay, some people might have got something, some people might not have got something. They're all in there, they're all there to see. You just got to, If you're not sure where they are, just simply read through the book and you'll find them all. Take notes. Okay, so we're showing, so we begin in John chapter 4 and Jesus is being baptising with his disciples. We've had the testimony of John the Baptist that Jesus is the bridegroom God. We heard that message back in August. And now Jesus has gone north and he's heading. So in the map behind me, you'll see he's headed up to this little village on his way. Now what he's doing, he's heading north. He's heading all the way back up to the, his base, his ministry base, which is in and around Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, and he's got to get from Jerusalem in the south. And basically, if you think of Israel, it's divided into kind of three regions, if you like. There's Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee in the north. Very broad geography lesson there for you. So he's down the south in Judea. He's going to go north to Galilee. He's got to go through Samaria. So he comes to this village. So and he's, he's walking north and he stops at a well and has a conversation with a woman about water and worship. Riveting topics. How many of you have had a conversation about water and worship with someone recently? Come on, be honest. None. None of us have. Maybe. 
Now that woman is so excited about the conversation about water and worship that she invites her whole village to come and meet this man and they become convinced that Jesus is the saviour of the world. It's a huge thing that's going on here. So let's take it scene by scene. Five W's this morning from John 4, chapter verse 4 to 42. You're saying with me, they're on the screen. Walk, woman, water, worship, witness. Five W's, same again. Walk, woman, water, worship, witness. There you go. You can go home now. You got it. All right. Let me give you a bit more information though. All right. Walking was normal in the day of Jesus. For some of us, it's not our normal mode of transportation. He's travelling, as I said, he's travelling north from Judea back to Galilee and he comes to, he has to make a decision about which way he's going to go. If you like, it's a fork in the road and a decision has to be made. Is he, if he takes one direction, he's going to enter hostile Samaritan territory, so to speak, or the other way, which is the longer way, he's going to go over to the coast or he's going to go inland, in and around, and he's going to bypass Samaria. We know what Jesus chooses, right? What does he do? Chooses Samaria, chooses to go through Samaria. Now, bit of a history lesson. The conflict between Jews and Samaritan was hundreds of years old. Much like some of the conflict we've got going on in the world today. Some of the, con- and the conflict in the Middle East today is still going on. It's thousands and thousands of years old. So th- this is not an unusual situation. So it dates back to about 720 BC when Assyria conquered the ten northern tribes of Israel and took most of them off into captivity and resettled them in different places and they're scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire and then Assyria shipped a bunch of other people in and repopulated the region. That was part of the Assyrian strategy. Conquer these people, shift them over here, conquer those, shift them there. So you're uprooting people and you're moving them all around the world so that they're rootless, they're disconnected from their ancestral homes, if you like. That's what. That's how they did it. So what happened is you've got some Jews who remained there, that the Assyrians left there. You've got a bunch of other people that come into this region. And so those Jews that remain there, they remarry. And so then these are the descendants of those that remarried the Gentiles, which God had forbidden Jews to do. So these are mixed race descendants. They've lost their Jewish identity. So for Jewish people, they are, they are less than Jews. Making sense? You tracking with this? Okay. Because they forsook the commands of God and did things that they shouldn't have. By comparison, when the southern tribes were conquered by Babylon and taken off into exile from the southern region and deported, they maintained their Jewish identity. Some of you knew that. Some of you didn't know that. So think of people like Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, those ones that remained and those that went into exile, they were zealous about maintaining who they are in God. And they, when they came back and resettled in the land, they had that identity. And when they set about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and the Samaritans, those, those mixed race descendants wanted to come and help. They, the Jews who were there said, no, you can't. 
because you forsook your identity in God. And so there's this bitter feud that exists still today. Bitterness is a terrible thing. It's terrible for for individuals, it's terrible for families, it's terrible for cities and nations. Bitterness is a destructive thing. Hebrews 12 warns us very clearly against letting bitterness take root in our own hearts. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. When if, we, if we let bitterness grow in our hearts, it will not only corrupt us, it will corrupt our families and it corrupts generations. And perhaps some of you are experiencing that already. Perhaps you've inherited generational bitterness and animosity towards an individual or a people group in the world. And the scriptures are very clear about what we've got to do. We've got to get rid of that. Jesus shows us the heart of God. As he walks into this hostile territory, he builds a bridge across centuries of ethnic hostility because he's wanting to, he, the heart of God is for people to be reconciled firstly to God and secondly to one another. And so in the midst of this place, Jesus sits down and offers reconciliation. So let's have a little question here this morning. How's your heart? Really, how's your heart? towards people, family members, friends, other Christians? Is there any bitterness at all towards an individual or a group of people? A racial group, an ethnic group, a tribal group? I want you to hear again what the scriptures say to us all. What Paul said in his letter to the, when he wrote to the Romans and he said, there's, there's only one God and that God makes people right with himself only by faith whether they are Jews or Gentiles, in other words, regardless of which, which ethnic group they belong to. There's one God. He makes people right with himself through one way, through faith in himself. When Paul also wrote to the church in Galatia, which is in Turkey today, and he said this, Galatians three twenty-seven to 29, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now what Paul's saying is he's not saying that those, he's not saying that men and women don't exist. He's not saying that Jews and Gentiles don't exist. He's not saying that slave and free don't exist as if those category, but he's saying, you know, now that you're in Christ, you no longer think of people in that category. Oh, they're a Jew. Oh, they're a Gentile. They're a man. They're a woman. You know, they're slave, they're fr- whatever it is. You relate to them because you're all in Christ is what he said. For you're all in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you're true children of Abraham and you are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. See, as always, we're lifted up to a higher realm, if you like. Higher perspective about all of these things. And then Paul in his letter to the church in Colossae, I really felt to drive this point home this morning. Colossae is in, in the Greece today, in the nation of Greece. He's, he said to those believers, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Do you hear the, do you hear the action statements, the things that we have to do? 
He doesn't say, and God zaps you and changes your thinking. He says, no, you be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. You see, he's calling them up to this higher perspective as well. We're not immune from this. We need to hear this again, everybody, and that's why I wanted to bring it this morning. Because today, in our nation and in the nations of the world, there are people intentionally splintering and aggressively dismantling uh, relationships, trying to drive wedges of animosity between different groups of people. They're trying to define people according to the color of their skin. People are being divided into oppressors. If you've got a certain color of skin, you're an oppressor. If you, if you have a different color of skin, you're a victim. All of those kinds of narratives. But it, it, it's in epidemic. It began in universities and it's now in schools and workplaces. We're, we're, so, we're so enamored with defining which tribe we belong to. And the church is not immune from this. We can get caught up in this rubbish as well. And so it's so important we come back and we anchor ourselves in the scripture. And we say, no, if someone's in Christ, it doesn't matter what color their skin is, what part of the world they come from, what their socioeconomic status is. What matters is that they're in Christ and we're in Christ together and we are pursuing Christ together. That's what matters. So Jesus, I believe, in, in deliberately going through Samaria, he's showing us here and elsewhere that this thinking and behaving that the world is pushing us to is hostile and opposite to the character of God, who is a God of reconciliation. If you're in Christ, that's the way you ought to live, and that's the message you bring to the world, and you point people to this, and you don't allow people to divide you into groups. Here's one that's currently going on. The vaxxed and the unvaxxed. The pro-vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers. Right? That's pretty topical these days. I'm the for-vaxxers and you're against the vaxxers or whichever group you're in, you know? Now, if you can't sit down and have a conversation, doesn't matter what side of that conversation you're on, if you can't sit down and have a conversation with someone on the other side, you've got a problem in your heart Perhaps that, that person won't listen to you and they got a problem. But it doesn't matter. You want to you be moving towards one another. See, our culture wants to say, drive people away, right? Now, the media drives this relentlessly in our society, people. And we've got to rise up and say, no, we're not, we are not uh, dancing to that tune. We're dancing to the tune of Jesus. We're in Jesus. And it doesn't matter what side of that conversation you fall on. Christ matters. So that's the first thing. Jesus took a walk. Many years ago, as some of us, we, uh, we did a teaching series on just take a walk across the room. And maybe it'd be a good time to just think about that again. Just take a walk across the room and talk to someone who you perhaps in your flesh, in your sinful nature, would choose not to have a conversation with. Let go of your bitterness, your resentment, your unforgiveness towards every single person. Embrace the reality of who Christ is and pursue Christ's way. So there's a woman, 
So Jesus is dealing with a racial and an ethnic barrier, but he's also dismantling a gender barrier between men and women. Jesus sits down at the well and he, he initiates a conversation with this, with this woman. Now what we need to understand is the backstory here. Okay, so, so and, the, and the surprise, the woman says, you're a Jew and you're asking me, a Samaritan and a woman. Those two things go together. You see, because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, strict rabbis would not speak or greet a woman in public. Often that included their own wife or daughter or sister. Now, apparently there's, there's reports I've, I, I have heard that there are reports of Pharisees known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because these men were so committed to not seeing a woman on the street that they would shut their eyes if they saw one and keep walking and then they would trip over things or stumble into walls and so they were called the bruised and bleeding, whatever, bruised, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Thank you for your help, everybody. Appreciate it today. So... And that's this, this kind of thing. It's this, you know. So for a rabbi to initiate, a Jewish rabbi to initiate a conversation with a Samaritan, that's one strike, so to speak. You know, one strike against Jesus in sense of the culture. For that Samaritan to be a woman, that's strike two. And Jesus doesn't care. He's come with a message of hope. And we, we find out that she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. Now, you can jump a couple of ways on that. We're actually not told the backstory. There's things that people surmise. The fact that she's coming in the middle of the day and the, typically the women who collect water in the mornings and the evening could indicate that she's an outcast within the village system. Probably, to some degree, she is. It could also be something else that's going on in terms of why she's had five husbands. And there's a, there's a thing in Deuteronomy, and the Samaritans actually followed the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They discarded the rest of the Old Testament canon. And in there, it talks about, you remember the conversation when some Sadducees came to Jesus and said, this man died without having children, and then the next brother married the wife, died, married the wife, you know, so the wife remarried. So it could be that kind of situation. So we just, we want to be careful about jumping to conclusions. But the point here is this. We've got a Jewish rabbi who's a prophet and is initiating a respectful conversation with a Samaritan woman. Now, here's my challenge to men this morning and boys. Treat women like Jesus. Treat women and girls the way Jesus treats women and girls. Study the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Learn from Jesus. I also want to just want to flip that around and say, girls and women, study the books of Matthew, Mark and Luke and John and look at how Jesus treats women and don't accept anything less from any, other, any man or any boy. Don't settle for it. You're worth more than that. He purchased you with his own lifeblood. Don't settle for anything less than what Jesus is offering you. Men and boys, you want to speak to women and girls as Jesus does. You want to look at women and girls the way Jesus does, whether they're physically present or on a screen. You want to think about women the way Jesus does. That's the standard 
that we're called to because we are in Christ. That's what we're looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what we're called to be. That's why we're called, we are not called to live according to the patterns and culture of our society. We're called to live differently and we're called to follow the pattern of Jesus. We, we look at Jesus and we learn from Jesus and we wrestle our heart, we wrestle our thinking, we wrestle our emotions into line by the power of the Holy Spirit with Jesus. Now, I want to just say again that part of what happen, will happen if you've been cultivating an appetite that looks at women in a certain kind of way or thinks about women in a certain kind of way because of what you've been feeding yourself in your eye gate, what you need to do is, be, is to put that aside, vigorously fight against it, flee from it, but you need to be focusing your eye gate on the beauty of Jesus and cultivating that appetite. You've been cultivating a dysfunctional, a sinful appetite. You've been feeding that appetite. You've got to starve that appetite and you've got to feed yourself on the character of Christ, the beauty of Christ. You want to look on Christ. You want to just be feeding yourself and, and training an appetite for Jesus. Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well. And it's interesting to see how, the, how her village responds when she says, come and see a man, could he possibly be the Messiah? So clearly there's an expectation that the world needs a saviour, that there's a saviour that's going to come. And so she runs back to the village with this testimony. This man told me everything, I know, everything I've ever done. <laughs> right? Could he be the Messiah? She's excited about him. And so and what and we know from what they how they respond that clearly they don't think she's loony tunes, clearly they don't see her as a despised outcast in the village that they don't pay any attention to because the text tells us that they came streaming from the village to see him. This is verse 30. And then they begged Jesus to stay longer. Now remember this is hostile territory, hostile village. So now we've got this group, now we've got some reconciliation occurring across ethnic and gender lines and he stays an extra two days. That tells you something about what's going on here. You, you just need, sometimes we read these things so quickly and we don't stop and think, hang on, what did that look like? Jesus actually stopped and stayed for two extra days. And then at the end of that time, the testimony of the people was to the woman that we first came in at a look because what you told me, but now I've heard him for myself and now we've come to believe that Jesus is the saviour of the world. So something took place in those two days where Jesus stayed in that village. I love it. Love to think about that. Now we'll talk about some water. And I love this phrase in verse 10. If you've got your Bibles in, open, have a look at uh, chapter 4, verse 10. This phrase where Jesus says to the woman, If you only knew the gift of God has for you, and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you the living water. Let's break that down. You think about it. If you only knew the gift God has for you. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Coming from the lips of Jesus. If you only knew 
the gift God has for you. If you only knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Living water is actually what the, what the ancient people refer to as running water. When you turn the tap on in your house, you have living water. Because you turn the tap on, it runs out. Right? They didn't have that in these days. It was wells or pipes or, or streams. So living water was considered running water that's moving. That was actually preferred but difficult to find. And this is a beautiful picture of the game that we have from creation to Christ, the new creation. In Genesis 2.10, we've got this picture. A river flowed from Eden. John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, we read this in the Festival of Shelters where Jesus stands up in the temple. He shouts to the crowd, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And Revelation 22 verse 1 tells us that there is a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So all the way through scripture is this beautiful picture of this river of living water that flows from God that we're invited to drink from. We're invited to drink. We're invited to let that wash over us, let that cleanse us and let it fill us up from the inside. Now, I want to ask this question for you this morning. If Jesus was here in this room and walking amongst us, how many of you would he say, if you only knew the gift God has for you? If you only knew who was speaking to you, you would ask me. And I would give you living water. Let that stir fresh hunger in your hearts, people, if you're following Christ. Just say, God, awaken a fresh desire, fresh hunger for, the, for you to, for me to know you in that way. I do know you, Jesus, but I want to know you more. Stir up my heart to desire to be thirsty for living water. And then we come to worship. The conversation changes. Like I said, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible, which is behind Jesus' statement in verse 22. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. It's a factual statement because they've cut themselves off from the from the from all the wisdom writings, the wisdom books in the Old Testament, the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. So he's saying you, you've got a picture of God, you've got something going on, but you're missing all all of this other material so you don't really know him now i wonder how what jesus would say to christians today who think they have very little need of the old testament the people that say we've got the new testament i don't need the old testament it's like i wonder what jesus would say i wonder i think he would say something similar you've got something going on but you're missing a whole chunk here you won't understand the new until you get the old they build on one another. They flow. It's a continuous story. Genesis through to Revelation is one story. One God all the way through. Same character of God from beginning to end. Grace begins in Genesis and 
Genesis 1-1, grace, that's grace, where grace begins. It doesn't begin Matthew 1-1, begins Genesis 1-1. Grace goes all the way through. It's all the way through, all the books. Grace of God, because God's the first person to speaking in everything. We're always a responder. So, and Jesus goes on and tells her, and this is great, isn't this good? Because people, people often ask me, what's God looking for? And here's a really simple answer. What's God looking for? Jesus tells us what Jesus, if you're saying, what's God looking for from me? Here's a clue. Verses 23 and 24. The Father's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Wow, isn't that good? He's not looking for tall, dark and handsome, strong men like me. It's okay, you can laugh. You know, he's not looking for the rich and famous. He's not looking for the athletic. He's not looking for the geeky intellectuals. Now, we're all in one of those groups. I think. Don't think I missed anyone out, did I? Young and beautiful. And he's looking. <laughs> I saw that hand. <laughs> he's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. That, that means it's open to all of us. It's open to all people on the planet. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? What does it mean to worship him in spirit and truth? Hmm. Got an answer? Anyone brave enough to have a shot at it? I think there's a couple of ways you can speak about this. I think, well, if you think of it in the essence of what God's looking for, to worship God in spirit and in truth is actually to fulfill the great commandment. It's to engage our whole being, body, soul and spirit. To love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength. That is to partly to worship him in spirit and in truth. I think it includes a passion which, which I put down to be volume and energy. Uh, you know, you go to sporting events you know and they're all the time like revving the crowd up and people are screaming at the top of their lungs and they talk about all this it's like maybe we get into worship in spirit and truth when there's a certain decibel when we're actually clapping shouting praising god lifting our voices we can also do it silently and quietly i get that some of you are like, settle down, Wayne. I'm just a quiet, you know, I'm just like a quiet person. I'm just a quiet personality. You may be. But, I, but you, you've got to read the scriptures. And the scriptures say that there are things to do. The scriptures say that worship is a full body experience. Right? It involves percussion. Okay? There's all sorts of body postures. So, now, can you sing and not worship? Yes, you can. Just because there's singing doesn't mean there's worship, right? Because worships, I got to engage my spirit. And one of the things that I've seen, that there are people who don't know actually how to engage their spirit and to worship from their spirit. And it, and it took me a while. I want to say, if that's you, if you, if you struggle in to connect with God in worship, ask him to help you connect your spirit to his spirit because he wants to do that. 
So it's, so I think to worship in spirit and truth involves volume and energy, but it's governed by biblical truth. It's governed by the knowledge of God as he is. It's not just a free-for-all out and about, and we do whatever we want to do. There are some people that love 1 Corinthians 14, and there are some congregations that love the first bit of, the, I can't remember what verse it is, but it's the end of, verse four, end of chapter 14 that says, everything should be done. And they love that bit. Then there's other groups that like the second half of the verse, decently and in order. <laughs> everything should be done decently and in order. That's right. Yeah, everything, sh- everything should be done decently and in order. Worship in spirit and truth has got to be passion and energy that's governed by truth, right? All of these things, they're all worth thinking about. And we could, we could actually preach a whole series on worship, and perhaps we will one day. But it's important that we worship God the way we see him being worshipped in the Bible, right? Got to strip away the culture, folks. Strip it out and say, how, what does worship in the Bible look like? And particularly, what does worship in the book of Revelation look like? Because that's where everything's moving. So I may as well start practicing now, right? Because that's what I'm going to be doing, right? So I want to look at that and I want to start doing that. I want to learn to do that. Uh, many years ago when I was pastoring another church, there was a man in the worship team who was pretty stoic, unexpressive, good vocalist, unexpressive physically. And then in a moment he decided, and I think it was the Holy Spirit, he said, I'm going to do what the song says to do. So if the song said lift his hands, he began to lift his hands. He felt felt gawky, dorky, awkward, right? If it said to kneel, he knelt. Whatever the song said to do, singing from the scriptures, he decided, I'm going to do that. I'm going to line my body up with what I'm singing. I want to, it transformed him. Interesting. Expression deepens impression. Expression. When I express with my body, it deepens the impression on me. So one of the things, uh, probably you do it at home, don't you? When you're by yourself and no one can hear you, you sing loudly at the top of your lungs. How many of you are top of the lungs singers when you're at home and no one can hear you? A few of you. And do you do that when you come here? Uh, good. Some of us do. Yeah. One of the things we want to start, we want to do is want to sing because it's like I'm singing for an audience of one. Now, we're not going to give you a microphone if you sing off key. You know, that's okay. But you, you want to sing with all your might because it's loving God with all of your soul, mind and strength. That's what we're after. That's part of what worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because we are humans. You know that, don't you? You know that we are humans. We are human beings. And we are created to worship. We're told that in the book from Genesis. And do you know what? We become like what or who we worship. Okay? So that's why it's so important to worship God in truth. Worship God is revealed himself because worship is core to our identity and it's core to how we function as human beings. It's our lifestyle. It includes what we do in dedicated spaces, sacred spaces like this one. On Sunday mornings, down in the prayer room, what we do in our homes and beyond. It's meant to be what we are doing. We are living and functioning as worshippers, governed by truth. 
So, worship. Number five, W, witness, saviour of the world. The woman left the water beside the well and ran back to the village and she told everyone, come, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so people came streaming from the village and they believed in Jesus and he stayed for two days. And they said, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we've heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. People, you've got people, in, you've got friends, you've got family members who have, have ruled Jesus out, but they've never met him. They've never looked at what he wrote or, well, he didn't write anything, but what was being written about him, what he did. They need people like you and me who will say, have you had a look at Jesus the Messiah? I believe Jesus is the Messiah and the Saviour of the world. Have you had a look? Just put that question there. Have you had a look for yourself? Have you made an informed decision about Jesus based on the evidence? That woman led many people to come and meet Jesus, listen to his teaching. They ended up believing that he's the saviour of the world. So Daniel 7, what does it mean to be the saviour of the world? It means to be that son of man who was crucified and resurrected and ascended and exalted to the throne of God, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. So where to be people who give witness that points people to Jesus? Whether they come to believe that he is a Messiah or not is not in our control. What is in our control is to point people to him, to say, have a look, have a look at him. So we're looking for people who are curious and motivated, but we have to open the question, just as Jesus opened the conversation with the woman at the well, didn't he? He started a conversation with her about water which led on to worship, which led to her becoming a great and powerful witness for him. We want to be people who just point, we want to be ones who point people to Jesus because our world's in desperate need of a saviour. People are running left, right and centre like chooks with their heads cut off, I reckon, looking for a saviour. Is he here? Is he here? Is it this? They're pinning their hopes in all sorts of things. Governments are making all sorts of policies, trying to save the world. We're all trying, people are trying to be saviors. The world has needed a savior since Genesis 3. This is not new information. We are people who can point people to Jesus as the savior of the world. We know where the story is going. The doomsdayers are not the end of the story. Our story is one of unconquerable hope, which I tried to share last Sunday. Where the story ends with those who are in Christ have got an indestructible life, an unconquerable hope and a glorious inheritance. That's where the story's going. Don't believe the doom and gloomers and naysayers. That's not where it's going. We say Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the saviour that the world needs. Will you put your trust in Jesus? He's coming back. He will conquer his enemies. He will establish the kingdom of God in all its fullness across the earth. So, as we wrap up this morning, we see Jesus taking a walk, having a conversation with a woman about water and worship, which led to her becoming a great and powerful witness. When Jesus, that Jewish rabbi, chose to walk through Samaria, he demonstrated 
God's love for his enemies, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. When Jesus initiated that public conversation with the woman, he de- demonstrated God's dignity and worth for all women. Let's just pause for a minute. We've got women in this room that have come from other places in the world. We've got, we know the stories of what's going on in Afghanistan about girls being withheld from school. Just because they're girls. There's so many places in the world where, where women do not have dignity and worth. It's so important that as followers of Jesus that we give women and girls the dignity that God gives them. When Jesus gave God's invitation to every thirsty person to come and drink God's living water, that's a wonderful invitation we can give. And he defined the type of worshippers that God's looking for. He's looking for passionately engaged people governed by the truth about God. And so by the time Jesus leaves that village in Samaria, he's transformed a hostile community of Samaritans into witnesses declaring him a Jewish rabbi as the saviour of the world. That's power, isn't it? Right there. It's transformed a hostile community of Samaritans into bold witnesses for him. Jesus is the saviour of the world. So I want to ask you this morning, what story are you living in? Because we are all living in a story. Some are living in the story that culture is telling you. That's a bad story. That's a destructive story. Some are living in God's story, the powerful story, indestructible life, unconquerable hope, a glorious inheritance. And some of us in here are living in between. The cultural narrative in God's story. We're trying to move into God's story, but we're trapped a little bit in the cultural narrative. And Jesus is inviting all of us, again people, to drink deeply from the river of life that flows from the throne of God, to drink deeply from the presence of God, from the living water that he alone is offering us. It was a powerful moment early in the celebration when we were singing, and I think Carly was singing... um, about Jesus loves you. And as, as I was receiving that, I was also thinking, Jesus, we need to sing this over the believers in Afghanistan, in North Korea, in Pakistan, all the places where they are being tortured and victimized. We need to sing that over them. Pray that over them. For the girls and the boys and the women that are being sex trafficked around the world. We need to sing that over them. We know the story. I'm looking around the room and you, you know the story. That today your heart please be moved. For people who don't know the story. Here. And in other places, I'm so excited about the giving for the international ministries in the harvest offering. We're going we're to be able to send way more than we originally planned. And I praise God for that. And that's part of the song that we're singing over them. That's going to go into those places of hostility. But as we, as we close this morning, you stand with me?
Would you just close your eyes and bow your head and pray with me? Just speak out to Jesus. Whatever's touched your spirit this morning from this story, whatever Jesus has touched in your life, I think for all of us there's an invitation from Jesus to drink deeply from the living water he alone is offering us. speak that out. Just say, Jesus, would you give me a fresh drink of living water this morning? The world is in great need of a saviour. And the saviour of the world is returning soon and he will rule over the whole earth. Until that day comes, We who have experienced his living water, we who have heard the message and responded through the witness of someone else that Jesus is the Messiah. We initially went and have a look at Jesus because someone told us. And we crossed over that line and we became convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And now it's on us to be witnesses for him. ones who invite others to come to him, to come and investigate Jesus. We don't coerce them or force them, but we keep speaking and saying to them, have a look at Jesus, come and meet Jesus. He really is the saviour of the world. Holy Spirit, right now, I ask you to stir up in our hearts the people in our, in our network, our families, our friends, our co-workers. Stir it up in our hearts to be gripped by your heart for them. Help us to be ones who move across the barriers to tell them the wonderful news that Jesus is the Saviour of the world. Help us, Jesus, as we go from here to be faithful witness. Faithful witnesses for you, just as that woman was in Samaria all those years ago. 